Another Way to Play, episode 107. What we took away from Spracklin is this idea of focus more than anything. He had very high standards, but of his standard that was the highest, it was focus. And he'd always say, focus is doing what you say you're going to do. Hello, podcast listeners. This is Adam Creek, Olympic champion and author of The Responsibility Ethic. And if you want to learn to make the next chapter of your life better than the last, then you should be listening to Another Way to Play with my good friend, Hans Struzina. Welcome to Another Way to Play. I'm your host, Hans Struzina, Olympic athlete turned top producing Bay Area realtor. I believe that your success or failure is determined by your ability to compete and win when it comes to your mindset. Twice a week, I talk with other high performers to share the lessons and inspiration that allowed them to blow the roof off their success. So get ready to have some fun, be inspired, and most importantly, learn the skills you need to win in your own life. This is Another Way to Play. I am your host, Hans Strazina, and I believe that your success or failure is determined by your ability to compete and win when it comes to your mindset. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome to the show. If you've been here uh, listening for a little while, you'll notice that we sound maybe just a little bit different, um, and that's because we're taking the content here just in a touch of a different direction, which is mindset, because a lot of the guests um, that I've had on over the last hundred or so episodes have really secured a solid mindset, and I want to dig in a little further on that because I believe that's where it all starts. Um, Today, I'm really excited about this guest. It's someone who I've looked up to for a lot of my life as a young athlete, as a young rower, someone who I tried to emulate to some degree. It's Adam Creek. He's an Olympic champion in the men's eight from the Beijing Olympics, part of Team Canada. There uh, has over 60 international medals, tons of accolades, and is uh, now turned one of North America's top executive and business coaches. He's also written a book called The Responsibility Ethic, which we talk about towards the end of the episode. So you're going to want to check that one out. Tons of great content in there. I've, I've had a chance to flip through it a little bit myself. In this conversation, some of the really interesting stuff we talk about is where your mindset comes from. He starts off by saying, you know, it's actually having to do probably with your family, starting with your parents, but going back a couple generations and then how it sort of manifests later. We also talk about certain things like birth order. Didn't expect that one coming from him, but we definitely get into that. He also talks about his rowing career, building a team, and how what you can learn from rowing as far as having a pecking order can be applied into the business world. And then most importantly, knowing yourself, having some kind of a hierarchy of needs and wants, understanding what you're really trying to get. Are you trying to get the promotion or do you want the recognition that comes along with it and the respect? What's more important to you and how do you reverse engineer your life to be able to do that? If you're getting value out of this, guys, please head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review because it really helps me know that the new direction is working, you're liking it. Also, obviously, the other feedback that you could give me, I would much appreciate. So thank you for that in advance. And without any further ado, let's get into it with Adam Creek. Adam, man, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really excited to have you on. Yeah, it's great to be here, Hans. Well, 
Before we get into your story, because it is a pretty awesome one, can you tell us a little bit about what it is you're excited about, what you're focused on right now, and kind of the things you have going on, and then we'll get back into your story here. Well, I've got a number of things going on, I guess, professionally and personally. Professionally, I'm just finishing up a video series based on my book, 30 videos. Uh, They'll be well-produced. I'm excited to put them out there. They're anywhere between three to eight minutes long, just have really succinct leadership principles that people can learn from, you know, how to deal with failure, how to communicate more effectively, things like that. And also within my work, I'm doing a lot of online business coaching, executive business coaching. So helping mid-level executives, you know, often they've got young families are really deep in the grind of professional career and know that they benefit from you know an external mind on their team you know to push them forward typically high achievers who are looking to move from you know 95th percentile up to 96th or 97th and then on my personal life I'm building a house I, <laughs> I ripped out a <laughs> chimney from yeah. the middle of my house and so we're uh, working through the renovations. We're probably two months in and another two months to go. So I'm halfway through the middle. So that's, those are the things that I'm working on right now. That's awesome, man. I mean, uh, uh, there's a lot of things going on in your life and it obviously takes a pretty strong mindset, but just to do, and I know that like we talked about, we're sort of focused on mindset on the show and it's, it's really cool to see people taking on multiple projects, but you had to develop that somewhere. So why don't we back it up and talk about your story and say, where did it actually begin for you? Yes. Your mindset definitely has to to be developed. And I suppose mindset, I would attribute the development of my mindset to my parents actually. And I think for many of us who have a good, good base of mindset, it comes down to the family that we're raised in. I think we are, you know, we're certainly blessed if we have a family that has parented us well. And so I'd say, you know, if we want to figure out where mindset comes from, I'd say that's the start. And to a certain extent, I believe that mindset is also uh, you know, not just your parents, but your grandparents and your great grandparents and your great grandparents. And there's a certain amount of psychology that's passed down through the rearing of you of being reared. But if we speed forward to rowing, you know, my my parents were very supportive in in all that we we did. And my dad was very much about you know taking small steps forward. And even if you have big goals, focus on on the next thing you need to do. He'd always tell me. By the inch, it's a cinch, Adam. By the inch, it's a cinch. And, and so I'd, I played a whole bunch of different styles of sport. I played you know, American football, basketball, shot put, discus. Uh, but was introduced to the sport rowing when I was 16. I eventually, I took a hiatus from the sport, worked on the oil rigs up in northern Canada for a year or two, uh, slamming steel, minus 40 degree weather, uh, that was pretty good. It was good, good training. You're working with, with people who know how to work hard and party hard. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> and, and you're out there in the wild. Which is an interesting diversion that you took. I mean, most people when they're coming out of high school or university or wherever, kind of look for the next thing in their sport typically. That's certainly what I did is I was like, what's the next team I can try out for? But but you you took that time. Like what made you decide to go up and of all things go bang around in negative forty degree water drilling for oil? 
Well, it was a sense of adventure. I love the outdoors. I knew it would be very tough, grueling work, and that appealed to me. I like the idea of, of hard physical labor. What I didn't realize is how much it would actually toughen me up and make me a better athlete. And so I think I, I truly benefited from it athletically by going out there and doing hard labor. You know, we think we work hard as athletes, but I think you know, a lot of the real athletes are, are the laborers who are, and we're losing so much of it with modern convenience and you know, electric motors and all that kind of stuff. But like some of these guys, wow, you're top, top athletes. And then another part was that I wasn't convinced that my path was rowing, to be honest with you. I wasn't one of those kids who, you know, some people will say, oh, it was my dream to go to the Olympics from the time I was a little kid, but that was never my orientation. I was appealed by the adventure. I also liked the fact that it was, you know, decent money, you know, working up there. And you got to see some remote places the piano of the planet. Yeah. So a number of things. That's interesting. Like, why didn't you think you had that sort of drive into rowing or, or that Olympic dream? And was it that you just didn't, the sport didn't click for you? Or you, you always were one of these guys that just needed to have, just needed to turn over a bunch of rocks first or, or to, before you could figure out which one you wanted to go with? Like, what was that? You know, people have always said, follow your passion, but I've never felt like I've had a deep, fiery passion inside. Like, you know, necessarily, I'm, a, I'm an energetic, passionate person. But if I was to say, you know, what, are, what are you passionate about? It was, it was always hard for me to, to figure out what that was. The reason why I kept on the path of rowing, my high school coach, he took me aside one day and he said, Adam, you're an Olympian. You just don't know it yet. And so it was, to a certain extent, it was this weight of opportunity. And I thought, this is something that I can only do when I'm young. Let me see if I can, you know, if I can take it you know, to, to the next level and see if I can, you know, actualize this opportunity. But it wasn't something that was a burning passion. It just seemed like the best choice at a certain point in time. So I'd, you know, at the end of high school, I thought, well, I could go to university. I had scholarships to go play American football down in the States. I'm a Canadian and then and same sort of things up in Canada. That wasn't really appealing to me. I had, I didn't, like I'd saw so many people go get degrees and not use them. You see people all the time. Oh, you got a biology degree and now you're working as a, you know, a carpenter. You know, what is that? And so I wanted to make sure that if I was going to put the effort into school that I'd actually use it. And ironically, I never, I never did. I am a geotechnical engineer who's, <laughs> who's a business coach. Yeah. It's funny. Like, I mean, it's interesting that you had that, I guess that vision to, to notice that and have put your head up long enough to at least re, like have that critical thinking. And, and I'm wondering if that's because of what you said earlier, like your, your mindset comes from your parents, but also the generations before you. And if there was something that was passed through that, because most kids cut out of high school and especially if they're good at sports, like you were, would drive towards university scholarship, right? But you sort of, like what's the bigger picture here maybe? And, and is that something you think was instilled in you early or you developed along the way? I, I think part of I'm a big believer in birth order. I'm the youngest of four children. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if you've been, have you been exposed much to birth order psychology? A little bit, only having been an older sibling and like knowing the tells of that versus my younger sister and stuff, you know, stuff like that, but nothing 
I, I probably not to the level you're about to expose me to. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, I don't know that I'm no expert in it, definitely, but I've, uh, you know, I've read a book on it. <laughs> Fair enough. You've read more than I have then. <laughs> but, the, you know, the idea being like the youngest is, is typically more footloose, fancy free. They've had more security while they've grown up and more of a safety net. So they're more adventurous and more willing to, to go out there. The oldest, you know, tends to be more, more disciplined. They tend to move more into leadership roles. If you look at senior level executives within organizations, they tend to be the oldest child or, uh, or only children because they've, they've had to have more responsibility. And so they've, they've built that leadership capacity earlier on in their life. And then typically, more stereotypically, the middle children, they tend to not get the same level of attention that the oldest child will, right? The oldest child comes out, the parents focus on them. And I see this even with my three children. You focus on the oldest child because they're the first one and you're doing everything. Then the second one comes along. And just as the second one's starting to need a lot of attention when they're two or three, you have another one. And so there's this, and then you can't spend a lot of time with with the middle child when they're going through this very crucial developmental stage between say ages, you know, two to five. And so the middle child tends to have, you know, a little bit more, you know, emotional angst, feel less, uh, less stable. And, um, you know, thus, I'm not sure if you ever saw the, the sitcom Malcolm in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. You bring that up and into sort of the, business world. I'm sure you deal with that with some of your executive clients to try and figure out who they were in the birth order to then try and figure out how they are in the boardroom or the CEO position or whatever it is that they're in. Well, that's a lot of what we work through when when I'm working with with my executive clients. We help to figure out what their personality is. Uh, We figure out what their identity is. And the more self-awareness you have as an individual, the more able you are to, you know, impact the world around you. So, yeah, that's certainly, you know, a piece of the puzzle. That's that's fantastic. So coming back to the rowing. So you got, you were on this oil rig doing this manual labor thing, and that clearly toughened you up in some ways and gave you some perspective. So you come back to the sport. And you obviously then had a pretty tremendous career by all accounts. Like, can you give the audience who may not, not know your career, like a little bit of a cliff notes version and, you know, obviously Olympics and all that stuff we've talked about, but like, there was a lot more than that, certainly. Well, so I'll go post oil rigs. I came down to the UVic. We won the Canadian University Rowing Championships twice in a row. And then the second year after uh, that was in, in 2001, when we won the, the, the second Canadian University Rowing Championships, that following year, I won the World Championships in the under 23-8, and then went to the Senior Championships the following year, 2002, 2003. We won the World Championships in the Men's 8 in Seville, Spain, and Milan, Italy. We got a few Royal Henley Grand Challenge Cups in there, a few World Cups. Went to the Athens Olympics, finished fifth, which was a bit disappointing. Then came down to Stanford University in California and rode a bit there. Got uh, won the junior junior athlete of the year out of all the athletes in at Stanford, and came back to the Canadian team. 
the Stanford team got silver at the IRAs, which was good. We made some records, beat UW for the first time ever in Stanford history, beat Cal. So that was some that was a big that was deal. Yeah. Times. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, came back, won the world championships, then won a bunch of world cups, then won the world cup in rowing in the men's eight. And then we won the Olympics. So a bunch of, bunch of wins, which was incredible. And I feel pretty lucky because it's a team sport, as you know, with your background in rowing, and you can't do it alone. You have to do it with the other guys in your team. I was lucky to have an incredible group of athletes, an incredible coach, one of the best in the world uh, to learn from and to be my mentor. So it was, it was a great ride. It was a really good ride. Speaking of coaches, because one of the things I talk about a lot is getting mentors and, you know, what comes up a lot on the show, frankly, is getting mentors, finding people who've been there who can help you and then being a sponge to that person and, and more importantly, applying what they're teaching you. And for anyone who knows Spracklin or knows anything about rowing of that era in the era that you were in, like that was sort of the notorious, like, that's like the toughest, best rowing coach in the entire world. And he's going to either break you or make you an Olympic champion and probably nothing in between. Right. So like he had this reputation, right. But then you had this different experience and anyone that I know who's rowed for him had this very different opinion of him than like the rest of the world. But he produced some pretty great results with all of you guys too. So like, can you talk to like that mentorship piece and had that tough guy reputation, but then also was like, clearly had the respect of all his athletes. Mm -hmm. Well, well, Mike Spracken was an introverted leader. So he was a, like the penultimate introvert, a very quiet, very soft spoken, very kind, and had a very base, you know, core of a very loving individual, but he was also very tough and very tough on himself as much as he was tough on his athletes. And as I grow and mature and as, as you're able to step back and see how he coached and, and just have the perspective of years and seeing other people who operate, you recognize that he was as tough on the athletes as he was on himself. He had very high expectations, personal expectations. And so if he has the highest expectations of anyone in the group, he's going to be offended if you show up and you don't show the same level of commitment that he shows. And so it would make him angry if you were, if you wanted to take off a practice because you're feeling tired or your hands hurt, you had blisters or you, you know, you had a little bit of tendonitis or you had the sniffles or, Oh, I'm feeling sick. And, and he just look at you and say, like, Hey, hey, that's okay. Hans, you could, you can take the day off from training. Not everyone can be an Olympic champion. <laughs> and, and so it'd be, it'd be sort of undercutting. Another thing he'd say, cause you're saying he had this tough guy rep, he'd say, you know, you throw, you throw enough eggs against the wall. And eventually, eight won't break. <laughs> and that was his training methodology. If, so yeah. he would train. Lots of people would get injured and drop out, or their, their brains would quit, or their bodies would quit, and they couldn't make it to the other side. But I think what, you, what we took away from, from Spracklin is this idea of focus more than anything. Like we said, he, was, he had very high standards, but of his standard that was the highest, it was focus. And he'd always say, focus is doing what you say you're going to do. 
We are here to win Olympic gold medals. If you are not here to win Olympic gold medal, then I don't want you. Right? We're, we're here to win Olympic gold medals. And so if we're here to win Olympic gold medals, then we need to put in the work. This is what I've seen work before. So I've got, he won an Olympic medal in every Olympics from 1984 to 2012. So he was, he's had put together quite a string. And so when, by the time he came in, he was just, he was like a Yoda. You know, he'd been in the game for so long and had seen so much, you know, as an athlete, as a coach. And he'd essentially say, well, this is the program I know works. And if you follow this program, you'll, and you'll get to the other side, then we'll win. So commit. And that's, and I remember when I first showed up, when Spracklin first showed up, there were three guys training with him, and then there were four. And when I showed up there, I think there were six guys training under Spracklin, and I became like the seventh and the eighth guy. And from the time that Spracklin showed up, everyone said, "You know what? We've just this guy Andrew Hoskins, who was our he was our captain in in Athens, and he was he led this philosophy. He said, "You know what? If we want to win, we got to buy in." We have to buy in 100%. This is a guy who has done it before. And it seems like a simple recipe, but it is. Let's just do exactly what he says as hard as we can. And that sort of mindset of buying into the leader, buying into what, they, what he says, leaning into it as hard as you can, was really fruitful for us you know, in the culture of, of the training center. And that is sort of the reputation from the outside of, of what I knew to be true. And I had a bunch of UW teammates who, who then went on to row for him as well. Rob Gibson being, I think he was an alternate for your 08 team. He, he was a few years ahead of me at UW and Will Crothers and a couple of these in Conlon McCabe and some of these other guys, Anthony Jacob, et cetera, who went on. And that was sort of the reverence for this guy of, of these athletes who I had tremendous respect for and competed hard against the university. And then afterwards, and that was always something that ha- that came up when you talked about Spracklin was like, he knows what he's talking about. And he's got this uh, system that works and he gets the athletes to buy in, in a way that might be hard in another environment because you've got tremendously gifted athletes who could sort of run the show pretty easily because there are egos involved with sport and what have you. Right. But how did you guys build the culture around sort of buying into this guy other than the fact that he had the the accolades and the, the history, like, you know, you've got a lot of type a macho dudes trying to row a boat and beat the heck out of each other to win a gold medal, to win a seat to get into the opportunity to win a gold medal. Right. So how did that culture come up? Cause it couldn't just be him. It had to be, as you said, the buy-in from the athletes. Well, it's a hierarchy. You know, we're all we're all chickens, essentially, in Spracklin's mind. There's a pecking order. <laughs> okay. So even if you've got a bunch of type A macho guys, the beauty of rowing is that you have er- ergometer scores. You can see who's faster than the other. We would train in singles and pairs. So every day, you know, every piece that we would do was a competitive piece. So you could see consistently over time, you know, is Hans at the front of the pack? Is he constantly finishing second? Is he constantly finishing third, fourth, fifth? Where does he sit? And everyone tends to know. You tend to know where you sit in the hierarchy. 
And so what Spracken would do is he would create an environment where there was a hierarchy and you knew where you sat in the hierarchy. And then he would pick his stud who was at the top of the hierarchy. And it was Andrew Hoskins in 2004. One of the issues happened that Hoskins near the end, he started to fall down the hierarchy of performance. And so he still had the, like, the social status, but he wasn't able to perform physically. And so that created some ruptures in, in the team culture. But what we had leading into 2008, we had a guy, Kyle Hamilton, who really came on in that quadrennial. And he was, he was our stud. Spracklin, you know, gave him the leeway. You know, and then we'd have outliers. Like there are people who'd fall in line, who were, you know, predictable, good athletes who will, who fall in line. But then we'd have other outliers like Jake Wetzel, who is uh, one of my teammates, who is just the best competitor that I've ever seen or interacted with or had the pleasure of racing with. But he's also a bit of a wild child and didn't quite fit in. So he was like, if you'd have like a higher, he wouldn't really fit into a hierarchy. He'd be kind of like, come in. He'd want to be at the top of the hierarchy because he'd have that drive, but he just didn't have the skill to hold it. And so you'd have to make special ex exceptions for, for people like that, who like, he would perform, but then he would also, yeah, he, he wouldn't buy in to, to a certain extent. He'd buy into the best that he could, but he had such a good, good physiology that Mike said, Mike would cut, cut him slack because he would perform in the end. But then when there are other guys, so Jake was performing and he wasn't fitting into Mike's system, so Mike would cut him slack. But then you had guys down here, who are like bubble boys trying to come into the boat, who are maybe trying to make a four go fast or quad. And when they had that same kind of attitude that Jake did, Mike didn't give them time of day. He just, he got all attention from them, all privilege from them. So I'd say in some, it was like he created a hierarchy. He picked the stud at the top of the hierarchy and he made sure that he reinforced that. And he created an environment where you got to compete and move up and down the hierarchy based on your day-to-day -day training. Yeah. And that, I, that's something I always loved about rowing was the fact that things were recorded and, and you could seriously see on a spreadsheet where you stacked up and it, you know, from that perspective, at least there was no, no questions. Right. But then there's always sort of the subjective last person or the Yoda factor, as you talked about of like, I just know from my experience that I got to move this guy around or put him there or there. Right. But when you take that into, you know, business or into your coaching, you know, someone says like that makes total sense in a sporting environment, but what about in a work environment? Like how do I create a buy-in culture and have the chicken pecking order thing work for me as opposed to against me? Or can I in that environment? Well, it depends on what environment you're building. Rowing was easy in that it was, and I'll say it's, it's a very simple objective. If you're laying bricks or you're, you're on a factory with a bunch of line workers who are doing the same task repetitively, you've got a sales force, there's certain places where you can create that hierarchy and pecking order to manage people and get the most out of them, create a competitive environment, make people feel safe within that hierarchy. Okay, I'm, I'm ranked number eight and I'm looking at, and you just use, you, know, you use the people beside you as competition. So if you so say, for example, you're managing a, a sales team and you've got 20 people selling windows 
And then you put out the sales numbers every week and you say, look, here's where you rank on the sales team. You know, Jim, you're at, you know, at level eight, just above Hans. And so Hans knows that he's going to look at Jim at Jim's number and that's his target. And so he's going to try and beat Jim. And so Hans and Jim have competition like that. When you, when you step out, I think it's important, I think, just from the hierarchy, just acknowledging that there is a hierarchy within business. I know I'm, I've been working with one client right now, and when we first started, he was, he was dealing with, with a lot of anxiety. So it was very anxious in his company. He had come in to a new position, and he was looking to move up into the C-suite. He was one step away, wanted to become a partner within the company, but was just, there was a there's a lot of like alpha dogs in, you know, in the space, you know, an investment banking style world. And so he was looking and I said, you know what I need, he's feeling like, I feel like I need more respect. One, two, I need to move. I want to move up the hierarchy to the C-suite. So we started going through a, a lot of work to uncover what the core issue was. And when we finally went down the path of values identification, you know, what do you truly value? It turned out that he like he valued the idea of respect more than he valued the actual position that he thought he wanted. So to a certain does that make sense? So this is counterintuitive and goes somewhat against this, you know, this idea because of, of the hierarchy, because in a larger organization, you can create your own little kingdom where you're achieving what you want within your career. And if, you know, if you're in a sales team, it's relatively simple, but, you know, as you age, trying to compare yourself with other people who've had, okay, I'm 45 years old and I'm comparing myself to someone else who's 45 years old, who's had a drastically different life experience than I have had, you know, different parents, different career. And all of a sudden you're not on the same hierarchy. You, to a certain extent, you have to figure out what your own hierarchy of values are internally and what he ended up doing was figuring out how to make the most of his position and was able to you know to recreate his position in a way that actually made him more satisfied and he's loving his job and more than he has ever (laughs) in in years that's really fascinating and i feel like it sort of what you just described sort of goes back to what you said at the beginning about the birth order of like knowing yourself and knowing at a deep level, because you said he thought he wanted C-suite, but really what he wanted was the respect. And then how do you reverse engineer the respect? Because if that's the top of the ladder and then going back to the sport thing, like you could create this system and have this accountability from the coach all the way down the pecking order. But ultimately you guys had a fantastic athletes and a, and a bunch of bought in people who were like goal is Olympic gold medal and then do the work to get there. It's like you almost have to do the work ahead of in almost in reverse order. Like what do I want? And then where do I fit in, in this system? Or maybe I don't, and maybe I got to make a change there. Oh, exactly. And this is why I've gotten, I'm a big fan of values identification and articulation when it comes to leadership development. And that I constantly come back to it because like you said, if you're training to go for the Olympics and you're going for the gold medal and everyone's bought in and said, hey, we're all going for the gold medal, then it's really easy to get a team aligned. That said, move outside of a high performance sport environment. And even people leave the high performance sport environment 
you leave and maybe it leave, you win, it might leave a good taste in your mouth, but most people who leave a high-performance sporting environment hate it. And I'm not sure if that's, you have, like, there's an element of your yeah. memories of... This guy, yeah, yeah. for those of you like, who can't see, yeah, I'm pointing at myself a, right now, because you know yeah. I've talked about this before. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, and to a certain extent, I hated it too, right? Even having won, of going through it. So there's, there's an element of, of self-loathing. So then you go to values or identification and articulation. So it's, it's a bit of a hack, right? So you have, you have beliefs and feelings and values are, are a logical solution to an emotional problem. And by going through a, you know, a, a defined process to put words around the deeper rumblings, you can then say, this is what I truly value in life. And this is the ranking of what I value in life. So I value respect and I value creativity and I value a generosity. And I want to make sure that I'm living in these states of being more often. So I need to set goals and, uh, or I, below goals, I need to create principles, you know, rules that allow me to live these values more often. And that will inform, you know, the strategy that I plan, uh, which is, which then informs the goals. So if we are saying, okay, I'm going for an Olympic gold, and I value excellence. So I want to see how far I can push myself to be excellent. And you know, my strategy for being excellent is to you know, pursue the, the sport of rowing. And my goal will be to you know, make the national team, make, uh, you know, compete internationally, win some international races, you know, compete at the Olympics, win the Olympics, and set the different goals that can then either, and then you can revisit your core beliefs. Cause once you have a result, you say, did I actually value excellence or did I value something different? And, you know, to a certain, and let me, cause this was a big realization I had when I was training for the Olympics. And it was, I talk about it in my book, I think it was chapter, chapter two, where I talk about taking responsibility for your goals. We had just won the world championships it was amazing. You know, it was the first time a Canadian boat had done it. So we created history. The first time a Canadian men's eight had ever won a world championships. Come back two, two weeks later, I'm back at home and I'm depressed. I'm bummed. I'm empty. I'm out. I'm finished. I can't move forward. And so I went through this values identification process. And one thing that I value in my life is generous impact. And for some, and to train to go to the Olympics, other people don't value that. I knew a lot of a lot of my teammates didn't don't value generous impact that I trained to go to the to the Olympics with, but for me, I did. And when you're training for the Olympics, you it's a selfish pursuit. It's all about you. It's just it's me, 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 me. And so, but diet, your bedtime, not going to weddings or parties or whatever. It's all about like getting yourself tuned up hundred exactly. percent. Yeah. So then I felt empty. And so I noticed that there is, there was a space in my, there is, there's a gremlin in my soul that wasn't being felt. And I still wanted to keep that goal of the Olympics, but if I didn't feed this value, I would self-destruct. <laughs> and, and so what, what I ended up doing was becoming a big brother through big brothers and sisters and allowed me to give back, have a generous impact. I impacted, you know, the life of this one young boy and I was able to live my values while also pursuing my goal. And I think that's the, 
you know, when we talk about high performance, we talk about hierarchies, we understand a hierarchy of our hierarchy of values and we can identify that, especially in times of, of turmoil, transition, and you know, self-doubt, values can really help direct us in the right space. Absolutely. I thank you for bringing that up because I, I find that to be really critical because it's important. It is important to set goals and targets, but to what point I talk about this, I've talked about this in the show. Like I got my first really big payday um, professionally, like a year, almost exactly like, well, it was 14 months ago at this point where I wanted to make the six figure mark. And I finally, I had like a big commission month where it was like 60 or 70 grand in one month. And I was like, okay, it's going to happen this year. It's like basically already happened because of what I had done previously that year. And I saw the money in the account and I was sitting there barbecuing and I was like, that emptiness hit me. And, and it was like, oh my gosh, it's not like the goal is going to be here and that it, it's not what it was, what I thought it was. Right. And so then I had to go back and, and do what you're suggesting, the values assessment and like with rowing and all this stuff. I mean, people have listened to the show. know I've talked about this before, but um, I, I love how you articulate it that way. And, and, you know, you've got the book coming or is it out or is it coming out now? And can you tell us a little bit about it if people want to read it? Yeah. Book is out. It's called the responsibility ethic. 12 strategies exceptional people use to do the work and make success happen. Like I said, I'm just putting out a video series. The first videos out, those will be put out. And the audio book will be published this fall as well. You can get it on Amazon. Talks, there's some rowing stories in there, but it's a, a business book. It's designed for people who want to up their leadership game, want to up their inner game. And uh, I recommend reading it. Well, Adam, this is awesome. I could talk to you all day about this kind of stuff. And I want to respect the rest of your time because I know you got uh, the rest of a chimney to blow out here in your house, plus record some videos. So I do want to transition us to the last segment of the show called the Focus Five, which is the same five questions I ask every guest on every show. Are you ready? I'm ready. You already sort of talked about a book, but what book have you gifted most often? Well, I've gifted the responsibility ethic most often um, <laughs> because it's my book. Yeah. Uh, um, besides that, do you want that book or do you want another book? That's a great one. But do you have one more that you could give us so we can, we can pick up two here? The other one that I've gifted a lot is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen oh, yeah. Covey. Love that Big one. Big fan of that. Focus on what you can control. Successful people surround themselves with successful people. Sharpen the saw. A lot of really good ideas in that book. If you could get an hour of somebody's time past or present live or dead and ask as many questions as you wanted, who would that person be and why? Well, Martin Luther King Jr. I'd love to sit down with that guy because he just, he seemed, he seems like he was a very grounded person, but very focused and driven. I loved his ability to, you know, to speak and orate I'd love to sit down with that guy. What is one thing that you believe most people would disagree with you on? That's interesting. I'm kind of, I'm a bit of a fatalist. I would say with COVID, I would say, let's just let everybody, all the weak ones die. That's if I, if I, if I were to dissect it down and go down to the, the ethics pathway, I might not agree with myself, but at a core level, there's, there's part of me that is more utilitarian in my philosophy. And uh, I'd probably say, you know what, if it's my time to go, then, then I'm gone. 
you know, I think there needs to be a culling of the human species and we're a little bit too sensitive in the preservation of it. But, uh, that's a good, that's a very <laughs> controversial one. I'm sure you'll get a few it's notes on social media after that one. I, I know. It. I know. It's, I don't know if I agree with myself either, but this is, this is where I tend to go into the places that, that's where I, yeah, I like discussing things that aren't, that aren't black and white and social media is a horrible place to discuss it. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine with all you got going on. How do you start your day? Well, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll get out of bed. <laughs> I'll make myself a glass of, well, a glass of water, then coffee or matcha tea. I tend to eat raw oats. I'll eat raw oats because they last in my gut longer. I can raw oats, almonds, eggs, and uh, sometimes I meditate in the morning. Other times I go for a walk uh, and then I get to work. It's usually up, up around 5.30 or 6. That's awesome. Man, this has been great. Uh, other than, you know, Amazon and here, getting the responsibility ethic there, what is the best place that we can connect with you online? Oh, LinkedIn or Twitter. And I'll link to those down in the show notes, guys, so you can follow him down or connect on LinkedIn or Twitter, as well as links to the responsibility ethic. And then you've got your website up too. So I'll throw that down there as well. Um, so that anyone who's interested in learning more about all that is you, they can do it down in the show notes. Okay. Adam, I appreciate your time, man. And uh, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah. Best of luck at all that comes, Hans. Appreciate you. And that's it for today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Really appreciate it. If you got value out of that and you want to learn a little bit more about Adam, the video series he talked about, or his book, The Responsibility Ethic, head down to the show notes. I've got all of that linked up for you there. And obviously my website, social media, etc. is down there as well. And again, if you're getting value out of this, you like the new format, please leave me a rating and review or just simply send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Love to hear what you're liking, what I can improve on, all that good stuff. Plus the reviews really help me grow the show and get it to a few more people out there in the world. So thanks in advance for that. And we're going to sign it off for today. So this is Hans Strizina, host of Another Way to Play. And remember to make every chapter better than the last.